pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these encounters of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that what we see here in these encounters really reflect our encounter with Christ. And so we pray that you would teach us this morning through your word uh, what the Lord Jesus is like, how he responds to people in need, how he brings grace uh, to them, how he loves them. But may it not be locked away in some ancient text in some uh, long ago past time, but may the reality of what we read, may we also know and experience the grace and love of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there are a couple of stories here, one which is woven uh, into the other. It's kind of like they fit together uh, as, as one story. It's kind of, there's kind of a framework where one story bookends another story that sits in the middle of it. But the two are linked. And I don't think it's sort of accidental that they're told together in this way. There are some similarities between the two stories, and there are some differences. And, and what I'm going to try and do in our time together um, today is look at the similarities and differences between these stories. I see three key similarities and two key differences. And I think by looking at the, those, we can, we can see into the meaning of this story and dig dig. Uh, some of the riches out of it, and I hope experience for ourselves something of the goodness and grace of God that's, that's here on display. Uh, so first of all, the, the first similarity between these stories is, is an obvious one. They're two women. A young girl of 12, uh, from the other accounts from Mark and Luke, we get her age, a 12-year-old girl, and a woman who is older. Um, her, her condition, she's had for 12 years, but she's obviously older. There are two women, women who, for different reasons, are not married. Now, for, for us 21st century Santa Rosans, that may not be a, a significant consideration. A lot of women aren't married, and a lot of them would not see that as, as, as particularly relevant to their status or their importance or, or their identity. And yet, given the cultural setting here, there's a little bit more meaning to that. This young girl is not quite marriageable age. She's coming into marriageable age, or, or would have been, had she not died at this stage of the story. And the older woman, we don't know quite how old she is, but her condition will have likely meant that she's not married. She, she would have been unable to have children. If we understand it rightly, she's got a, a menstrual problem. She has a discharge of blood, which means that she's always suffering from this, which means obviously it causes her pain, causes her a lot of emotional grief, and in this social context also causes her exclusion, isolation, which we'll come back to in a, in a moment. But, but it would also have meant that she would certainly not have been able to have children and most likely would not have been able to have a husband. These are women who have been deprived of that honor, deprived of that opportunity, deprived of that thing which in their lives would have been quite a high priority. Uh, the opportunity to be a mother, to raise children, to celebrate family. And obviously that's, that's a good thing in all cultures, but we've got to put ourselves 
into the mindset of these folks here in this story for whom that would have been the absolute ideal and a wonderful thing and a great grief to miss out on. And yet that's been their story. They've missed out on all of all that that involved. And, and as such, you, they are, you could say, symbolizing in this story Israel's condition. The, the people of God who, the, the, the special chosen people rescued and loved and cherished and brought into covenant relationship with a loving God who presents himself throughout the pages of the Bible as a bridegroom. Like a, like a, like a husband who, who reaches out for his bride and makes her his wife and chooses her and loves her and, and looks for faithfulness from her and offers his faithfulness to her. And that's how God presents himself to his people throughout the Old Testament. And yet you get the heartbreaking story, which seems to repeat itself, of Israel's spiritual condition deteriorating through stages over the pages of the Old Testament. She becomes basically more and more unfaithful in ways that are kind of unspeakable, turning to other gods, turning turning. To, to other spiritual paths, some of which are absolutely monstrous in ways that are unfaithful and disgraceful and disloyal, and it breaks the heart of God to the point where God sends prophets in the Old Testament, numerous voices who, who come saying, come back, Israel, to your covenant vows. Come back to your faithful groom. Come back to the one who, who rescued you from slavery, who loves you, who, who chose you for himself, who, who's always been faithful to you. Please come back to him. Won't you come back to him? This is the cry of so much of the pages of the Old Testament. It just keeps coming coming through. And it breaks the heart of God. And yet it also breaks the nation of Israel. They're broken by their own unfaithfulness, their own error, turning their heads after other gods, turning, turning for other lovers. Their many indiscretions and acts of, of terrible disloyalty, they, they don't do them any good. They, they, they flirt with other gods and other paths, perhaps even imagining that, imagining that this will make them happy. But the nation becomes unhappy because unfaithfulness do, does make us unhappy ultimately. I suppose marital faithful, unfaithfulness is a, is a classic of, a example of, of this very thing. The, the person that pursues an affair, maybe a bride is a, attracted to you, to, you know, a, another, another man in the office or, or you know, just, you know, just a friend of their husband, whatever. They, they, they get entangled in a relationship. Or maybe a husband finds someone attractive and gets to the point in life where they're looking around, his eyes are wandering and he's distracted. And the early stages of an affair might even be characterized by a certain atmosphere of life and freshness and even falling in love. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm finding love uh, again. I never thought I would fall in love all over again. And to deny myself this relationship would be to deny myself love and to, to deny myself fulfillment. And I mustn't do that. 
You know, we dress us, we, we dress us up in all kinds of strange self-defeat, self-deceit. But underneath, in reality, what's going on is something horrible. We're dressing up on faithfulness, and when we're most honest with ourselves, we feel the horror of it. We feel the ugliness of it. And, 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 and people who've done it will, often years afterwards, sometimes they'll be still affected by a horrible sense of having done something, not just wrong, but sour, horrible, ugly, defective. And self-deceiving because you chase fulfillment and you chase romance, the romance of of an affair and feel, "Ah, this isn't fulfilling at all. It's feeling all wrong, in fact. There's something deep down that, that feels wrong about this. Now, I might manage to beat my conscience down and overcome those feelings of, of guilt. I might manage, people can manage terrible things to drown out guilt. But it takes a lot to do because it's a horrible thing on faithfulness. It brings a terrible harvest. And think of it on a national level. Think of the sense of having lost your identity, lost your spiritual groom, lost your husband, because as a nation, you've turned away from him. In fact, it's not just, it's not just Israel's story. It's the human story. It's my story. It's your story. It's all of our story. Every nation is made up of human beings who've turned away from the, faith, the faithful God who made us for fulfilling life-giving pure devotion to him, which gives us happiness and contentment like nothing else can. You will never find anybody so satisfying and never find any relationship in life so pure as the one that you can have with the God who made you for himself. And to come back to him and to feel again the purity, the cleansing of your sins being forgiven and and all your unfaithfulness being washed away and wondering perhaps, will he receive me? Will he forgive me? Would he have me back? And finding that he does. There's nothing quite like it. To know the God who made you for himself and and all of the stuff that's made us feel rotten and filthy and guilty, to know that's over with and, and, and to be coming back to him and have the past forgiven and to be brought back into union and marriage with him, there's nothing like it. You know, it may seem strange that, we're, that I'm talking about such a big theme when we're talking about these two women being healed, but I believe that they're partly re- presented here to represent this idea of a nation that's lost its spiritual identity and actually suffering sickness. I, I partly see that because I see just before we get to these verses, In the larger context, Jesus is having a conversation with the disciples of John the Baptist where he refers to himself as Israel's bridegroom. And he says, if you like, I've come to bring joy. I've come to bring jubilation. I've come for a wedding. I've not come to bring a dirge and a sorrowful tune. I've come to bring joy and life. That's what I've come. 
come for. I am, I am a bridegroom and I've come back to this estranged and unfaithful bride. I've come to win her back. This is Jesus' understanding of himself and he's teaching this very thing when at the start of, of the story, you may have noticed, it says as we began our reading today, while he was saying these things to them. So Jesus is in mid-flow describing himself as Israel's groom and then a man comes and says, my daughter is dying. My daughter, who, who would be of marriageable age soon, she's dying. And while he's on the way to heal her, another woman, deprived of this privilege, reaches out to be healed. And interestingly, when she reaches out to be healed, she reaches out and touches his garment. And we might say, well, so what? She touches his garment. Well, if you read one or two places in the Old Testament, you'll notice that actually the garment of the groom is one of the things that gives dignity and covering to a prospective bride. You see that in Ruth chapter 3, in Ezekiel chapter 16. So there, there are a few details here which suggest that there's more going on here than just the, just the physical healing. Jesus is reaching out to a nation. Jesus is saying, I've come to restore and redeem a bride that's lost her way, lost her calling, lost her identity, lost her life. I'm coming to, to, to bring her back to myself for fruitfulness and life. And then when Jesus gets to the house, he discovers it's a house of mourning. I mean, they're flute players, but they're not playing a happy tune. It's a funeral dirge that's going on. Sorrow, grief, mourning taking place. What does Jesus do? He does the most unspeakably insensitive thing, it would seem. He tells the crowds to go away. The squirrel is not dead, but sleeping. Go away, you mourners. Go away, you people in grief. Go, 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 because... I've come as a bridegroom. I've not come, I've not come as the undertaker. I've, I've come to bring healing and life. This story seems to be so rich with this idea. And to understand that for ourselves is important. Maybe there are people today, maybe I'm speaking to some of you today. For some of you, the reality is, is that there are temptations to unfaithfulness. Maybe you're a, a, a married man or woman who are being tempted. It may be a, 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 an unfaithfulness of, of another kind. It may be a distraction of another kind. It may, it may be pornography. It may be some, some other distraction that's actually taking you away from your heavenly bridegroom. And you know it doesn't bring joy. It doesn't bring contentment. It doesn't bring a sense uh, of, of these good things. It brings a sense of sorrow. It brings a sense of brokenness, a sense of things not being as they should be. And Jesus, to our amazement and surprise, rather than consigning us to our unfaithfulness and leaving us in our sin and shame, reaches out to his people, reaches out in mercy and tenderness to bring healing and forgiveness and life. This is what he's like. That's the first, that's the first similarity here. Let's then quickly look at, at a difference. Um, one difference in the story is that these two women represent an insider and an outsider. The girl... The, the, the daughter of a ruler is definitely an insider. 
Uh, her dad is a ruler. Now, probably it means he was a religious leader, a ruler of the synagogue. That's what, in fact, Mark and Luke specifically say explicitly in their account of the same story, a ruler of the synagogue. He's a ruler. He's, he's got profile. He's got authority. He's probably got wealth. And she's his little girl. She's his little princess. She's growing up with privilege. She's growing up with a lot of support and freedom and opportunity. And now she's sick, dying, and dead. Of course, of course, the God of Israel would care for her. Because she's the daughter of a ruler, right? She's in. It's who you know. God's going to care about the daughter of a ruler. But it's striking that when Jesus is reached out to by somebody nobody would notice, in fact, the whole point of the story seems to be that nobody does notice her. Jesus does. Jesus notices her from, from a touch. She, she reaches out, touches his garment, and he turns around and says, Who touched me? She's terrified. She's ashamed. She's embarrassed. She, she didn't want profile. That, that wasn't what she was looking for. She's used to her obscurity. She spent years isolated, ignored, lonely, separate from society because of her condition. That's been, that's been her life. She's a nobody. So we've got a somebody and we've got a nobody. Which one of them does Jesus care about? He cares for both. And he surprises us by how much he cares for the nobody. It seems he's deliberately trying to draw attention to the nobody. Our, our society would, would draw attention to the, to the somebody. It's no different here. You know, come, come, there's, there's somebody that's unwell. There's a, there's a somebody that's dying. There's a somebody that's dead. Okay, okay. What about this nobody? I really, I, I, I really want you to notice this one. In fact, I'm going to heal her. I'm going to take, take time with her. I'm going to draw attention to her. I'm going to draw her in. And he calls her daughter. Isn't that interesting? At the very point where a famous daughter is the concern of an important father, my daughter is sick. And if you've ever had a child that's, that's seriously unwell, suffering, or maybe you've watched a parent go through some of this, just, just the emotional exhaustion of it the, and, the, and the, the fear and the desperation, they'll try anything, they'll do anything just for their daughter. There, there's, there's such a passion in the heart of a, of a father for a daughter. And it is at this point that Jesus turns to this nobody and says, daughter. Watch the way the ruler is about his little girl. And you get to see something about how my father and how I am, to, am towards you. Towards you, uh, 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 who nobody even acknowledges, nobody even knows. And the ways of God are so surprising to us. We, we don't understand his priorities, the kind of person that he would reach out to. We often imagine that we know. We often imagine who's the important person coming in, you know, to the meeting on a Sunday, or who the important people are in church. We often imagine who's got something to say, who, who, who we should give preferential treatment to. 
Jesus often surprises us. And, and Jesus shows not just a willingness to, you know, to dole out charity. Oh, here you poor thing. Have, you know, have, some, have some healing. No, he turns the whole story on its axis and says, let's talk about you, daughter. Let's dignify you, daughter. He reaches out to the nobody, the apparent nobody, and he makes her a somebody. He gives her identity. He gives her the value of being known and related to by the living God. There could be nothing better. And Jesus reserves it for her, it seems. There's, so there's a difference there. There's also, a, 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 though, another similarity. And let's come back to a similarity. Both healings involve touch. Come and lay your hand on my daughter. If I could touch his garment, I'll be healed. Both are stories of touch. And both, both stories where touching would not be a neutral thing because, well, touching a corpse, when you read the law of the Old Testament, you read the, the ritual law that took place, the systems of worship, you understanding that a touching a corpse would mean being ritually unclean for a season afterwards. And it would be a while before you could even come in contact with with the holy things, or even in contact with other people. You, you'd be unclean. You'd have to work for a little season to, through the season of uncleanness if you touch a corpse. And if you were touched by somebody who has a blood discharge, in Leviticus 15 it describes these things, a discharge of blood, a blood hemorrhage, someone who's menstruating, the idea being that the life of an animal, the life of, 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 of people is in the blood and that the blood escaping from us is a sign of life coming out, life flowing out. And all of the various features of Israel being a holy people set aside for a holy relationship with a holy God means that certain things seem to speak of, 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 of the opposite. That they speak of, of creation being out of joint, creation being broken and death coming in, life being drained away. These things must not, we must not come into, they must not come into contact with holiness because they will stain it. We can't bring that in as much as we might want to. We might feel great compassion for a woman with a discharge. We might feel terrible compassion. But how can that come into the holy place? How can what's dying come into the place of life without bringing with it the, the uncleanness, the infection that follows? Uncleanness is infecting. You, you touch an unclean thing, you become unclean. And yet for Jesus, the point of contact, literal physical touch contact with that which is unclean, rather than a moment of infection, seems to be a moment of cleansing. A moment instead of healing, a moment instead of overcoming sickness and suffering. This is a powerful statement in this study, in, in this story. The, the woman with this blood just discharge reaches out and she's healed from that time onwards, it would seem. She touched Jesus. The dead girl in her tomb of a house, if you like, where all the others have gone out. Jesus goes in alone and then she arises. Jesus touched her. How could this be? 
How is he not infected? How are they healed? Jesus seems fine. He comes out after he touched this girl. He's fine. He's alive as ever. He touched this woman. He seems clean. He doesn't seem to be overcome with uncleanness. How is this? Well, perhaps you've heard, the, heard of the, the picture of Dorian Gray. It's an Oscar Wilde uh, novel. Uh, he's describes, he describes a young man who, who lives a wicked and, and debauched life. He looks, but he but looks younger all the time. He doesn't seem to get old, and he just always looks fresh and, and young and innocent, however wicked his life is. But there's a, a portrait of him hanging in his house which actually itself takes on a horrifying and ugly look. The the, the lifestyle he's living outside is, is shown in this secret hidden portrait, which begins to look grotesque and bears a sign of aging. And I suppose Jesus, as he went around healing the sick, you would have looked at him and thought, he, he seems to be invincible. He's not overcome. These things don't don't affect him. He just heals and heals he, and heals. And, 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 and perhaps we didn't understand that something inwardly was having to happen. He was taking up, quoting from Isaiah, taking up our infirmities, taking up our sorrows, our iniquities, our sin. He took them up in himself. The woman stopped bleeding. Jesus was going to bleed. This little girl, she arose from death, from her sleep. Jesus was going to lie down in the tomb. For three days, three nights, Jesus became death. Jesus became blood discharge. Jesus became sickness, suffering. Jesus became sin. Jesus took our curse. How could people touch this pure and holy man and not infect him Well, ultimately, I'm afraid we did. Jesus became us in our worst condition. Jesus understand this woman's shame, this this woman who'd been excluded, ignored, isolated. You think Jesus knew nothing of that? As the soldiers mocked him and sneered at him, laughed at him? What a ridiculous fool this man is. Treated them as a fool, as an outsider, as a nobody. Jesus knows what it is to become everything that is the worst about our lives. Everything about our lives that we hate. Jesus took that infection of our sin and dealt with it forever and ever. Jesus is able to restore and redeem, having gone through the curse for us. And Jesus is therefore able to affirm, and that's another difference actually in these two stories. Jesus is able to publicly affirm this woman. He's able to publicly, deliberately draw attention to her, to to rescue her from her shame. Take heart, he says. He rescues her from her fear. She's reached out in faith for healing, and he turns to her and says, take heart, don't be afraid, you don't have to live in fear. Jesus says, I want you to be brought back in. You've been kept on the outside, you've not been able to enjoy life and fellowship and community and marriage to your heavenly bridegroom. You've not been able to. I welcome you in. I welcome you in, daughter. I welcome you in. Take heart. Jesus deliberately, publicly affirms her. That's how Jesus deals with our shame. When 
when, when we feel unable to approach him, when we feel we can't possibly approach in our shame, in our awkwardness, not only does he love us, but he wants to publicly acknowledge and affirm us. Remember the story of the boy in Luke 15 who, who leaves his father and does some shameful things and feels the shame and he comes back to his father to, to look for a, a place to stay quietly in the back. He wants to come in the back door, wants to, to sneak in, doesn't, doesn't want, you know, expect a welcome, doesn't expect a welcome at all. Why, why should you even love me? Why would you want me? Why, I'm not even worthy to be called your son, he says. And Jesus tells a story saying that the father went out and embraced him and then publicly, publicly wants a party. It's not the back door. No, no, that won't work. That's you. If, if you feel isolated, if you feel like, I, I, I get this sermon for all these other people in the church, but I'm isolated by my shame. Jesus says the opposite. He doesn't want people living isolated by shame. He wants to publicly own you, acknowledge you as his child. There, there's coming a day when he will do that globally. He'll publicly declare who his children are. It says so in Romans chapter 8. He'll publicly show off his own. He'll say, these are the ones that I'm not ashamed of to call my sons and daughters. I'm not. I'm joined with them. I'm, 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 I've joined them in their shame. They join me in my honor. And then finally, the last thing. A similarity again. Uh, a similarity in these two stories. Both stories demonstrate faith. What, what does Jesus affirm particularly in this woman? Take heart, daughter. Take heart. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. He honors her faith. Her faith. It's not by the way uh, the, the, that faith in itself is some kind of commodity that we just need to, to get a little bit more of. I, I need a bit more faith. I, wh where do I get faith? Sometimes people see these verses in the Bible and they, and they miss the point. They turn it into th a thing about faith for itself and we start to put our faith in faith. I just need more faith. I, I just must have, have faith. No, faith in itself is nothing. You don't, you don't need the commodity of faith. If only I had more faith. What do you mean by that? Faith on its own is nothing. Faith is what it focuses upon. That, that's the point of faith. It's the object of it, the, the object of the faith. The person having the faith needs to be convinced, persuaded of, confident in the one who is trusted, the trustworthy one. And this woman has found somebody trustworthy. She says to herself, you notice the way she, she talks to herself, if, only, if I only touch his garment, I'll be made well. She's decided that Jesus is trustworthy. She's confident in him. She's confident in his power and his love. She sees it. She knows it. And she decides. She, she trusts. She's persuaded. She, she's not making her mind up anymore. She's made her mind up. He's good. He's good for this. She's made her mind up. Have you made your mind up? I'm talking to you, whoever you are, Christian or not Christian, whatever your journey is, whether you've just become a Christian or you've been a Christian for 50 years, there will be constant battles, constant opportunities for us to, to, 
stay in the place of, oh, I, I haven't really made my mind up. And you've got to decide often at stage uh, after stage, point after point in your relationship with God, in your journey through life, to make your mind up about his faithfulness. I've decided, I trust him, I choose to trust him. I trust him over my fears, over my anxieties, over the many reasons not to press on, the many reasons to to quit, the many reasons to give up. I have made my mind up. I trust Jesus. I've made my mind up. He's trustworthy. And that's what faith looks like for all of us. We found a Savior who we trust. We trust him. We, We turn to him and we trust him. We believe him. We say, I've made up. I've made my mind up. You're good for this. I've made my mind up. You've died. You died for me. I've made my mind up. You have, you have power over death. I've made my mind up. I've made my mind up. You can get me through this at my workplace. I've made my mind up. I, I, I will not do that dishonest thing that I've been asked to do. I've made my mind up. I will share the gospel with my friend. I've made my mind up. I, I will learn to, to, to give money away and, 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 and not cling to it in a greedy, fearful way. I've made my mind up. I will love my husband through this painful season rather than pulling away in a, a mean-spirited, cold-hearted way, even though, even though I feel like he deserves my coldness, even though he's wronged me, I've made my mind up. I trust Jesus. I will keep loving. I will keep loving. I've made my mind up. That's faith. I trust Jesus. I believe him. Rather than all my feelings and circumstances and other opportunities that distract and confuse me. I've made my mind up. Jesus is trustworthy. I've made my mind up. That's what faith means. It also means that you seek him, you look for him, you hunt him down, you find him. Like this ruler does here in this story. Where's Jesus? Go find him, interrupt him, get him. I've got to get him to my daughter. You find him, you seek him out. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. The writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, because If you would come to God, you must believe that he's there and that he rewards those who seek him. You've got to believe, you've got to be persuaded. If I get to Jesus, if I talk to Jesus, if I ask him, if I pray, something will happen. Prayer changes things. That's what faith says. Faith believes in Jesus enough to pray to him. Faith is not just, uh, I, I'm just, I'm deciding whether or not to pray. No, faith prays. Faith gets busy. Faith gets on its knees. Faith calls out to God. Faith seeks God. If you're not seeking God, you're not trusting God. If you're not on your knees praying to him, I don't know what your faith actually is. Faith is expressed in persistent prayer. You call to him. You seek him. You ask him. You knock at his door. And you overcome your dignity if necessary. In the ruler's case, that's exactly uh, what it was like. He had, to, he had a lot to lose by seeking Jesus out. But he did it anyway. I'm going to find him. I'm going to find this man. Imagine it was very controversial. This is Jesus. He's controversial. We're not, we're not sure. We, we're struggling with his message. Have you heard some of the things he says? Have you, have you heard some of the things they say about him? Do you know that he's a friend with tax collectors and prostitutes? Do you know 
the people he hangs out with? And you're a ruler of the synagogue. Don't, don't you go, go near this, this, this Jesus. He's, he's, he's got, you've got a lot to lose. Keep your dignity. Keep your prestige. Keep your status. You're going to hang out with Jesus and the Jesus people? For many of us, that's enough to put us off from following him, isn't it? That's enough to stop us becoming Christians because of the association, because of the people that... The, the way that people uh, around us will, will react to it. If I put my trust in Jesus, what will I lose? How will I lose? What respect will I lose? What esteem will I lose? What will my friends think of me? What will my family think of me? If I follow Jesus, I will lose out socially. And yes, you probably will. The faith says it's worth it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm desperate. I want my daughter to live. I want what Jesus alone can bring. I must have Jesus. Faith puts him first, prioritizes him. And faith reaches out when we're worried if, if, if even we can, when we feel, uh, when we feel our, our guilt and our shame. Faith turns desperate need and disqualifying need into a qualifier. This woman, she's disqualified from, from touching holy things. On one level, she shouldn't, but she does. In her terrible need, in her disqualification, she comes to Jesus anyway. Comes to Jesus anyway. She had so many reasons to think, I could not, I should not, I must not go near Jesus. You do that, I do that, maybe often, maybe every week. Maybe you do or say um, something or, or, or think something and, and you think, I, I, I should never have done that. I can't come to Jesus. I can't be near Jesus. I can't touch Jesus. I'm unclean. Can't touch Jesus. She, she thought the opposite. She thought, I'm unclean. I must touch Jesus. If you feel guilty, if you feel stained, if you feel ashamed, Take it to Jesus. Go to Jesus with it. Do not hold back. Tell it to him. Do not see it as a reason to resist him. See it as a reason to press in, to know him more. In your need, in your failure, in your shortcomings, even in your sin. Listen, you are ripe and qualified for union with him. You come to him and say, I have nothing to bring but shame. Please cover me. Please heal me. And you will find what a good Savior he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us to learn these lessons of faith, to trust you, even if it means losing other things, even if it means overcoming our guilt and our shame. Help us to keep learning to do it, to trust you through every circumstance and to believe that you're good for your promises. In Jesus' name, amen.